again. I've got, I think, a book of announcements that's been put up here. Just remind everybody, this Saturday night, we're going to uh, set our clocks forward, spring forward. So we have daylight savings time beginning uh, overnight. So set your clocks ahead an hour. Also, Sunday morning, we're going to have a very brief um, uh, presentation from this group in Brazil, the Light in Action Ministry, uh, on what they're doing. This is they, These people came out of Good Seed Ministry. Uh, they're putting together quite a good film project. They've also been very supportive of uh, Jeff and Doug Karn when they've gone down to Brazil. Plus, uh, they have been... Um, uh, they, we were praying for them a couple of years ago because uh, a lot, all their video equipment, computers, and all that stuff was stolen, and so we were praying for that. Chafer Conference begins on Monday, so Sunday, immediately following the worship service, we're going to need volunteers who can stay for 30 minutes or so to help set things up, and a few ladies need to help out Roberta and Ann in the kitchen. We still need volunteers during the day and uh, helping out in the kitchen. There's a sign-up sheet out in the uh, fellowship hall, and uh, we need some help. Uh, Betty Munson needs a couple of ladies to help her uh, get the bathrooms all cleaned up, ready to go. Mark Friedrich needs help getting uh, some tables set up, and so uh, this conference always takes a lot of help, and I'm very appreciative. This congregation has been very supportive. We've always had a lot of volunteers uh, doing everything, so it has always come together uh, one other thing is that a lot of you have little stools or you have blankets or Bibles or whatnot that you put on your chair to save your seat. And by Sunday noon, you need to have those out of here uh, during the conference. You can bring them back when it's over. But uh, in the meantime, you need to clear clear that out. Also, there's um, uh, any questions you can ask uh, Roberta Beaver. And then... Next week, Bible class on Thursday night will be canceled. We are so always been so exhausted at, by the end of the conference that we've never had Thursday night Bible class on that particular week. Men's prayer breakfast is this Saturday morning uh, at 7.30, followed by our uh, monthly deacons meeting. That covers most of the announcements. I have no idea. They're out there somewhere. It's on the internet, and their brochures published here and there. So there's basically two speakers uh, <clears throat> this year. There's a few extras. David Rosen speaking. We need to be in prayer, uh, by the way, for his family. Uh, his father, Bert Roseland, went to be with the Lord last Saturday morning, had a massive heart attack about 4.30 in the morning, and uh, did not make it to the hospital they uh, the the memorial service or funeral for him will be this Friday at two o'clock at I believe it's Grove Hill Funeral Home in in the Dallas area. So be in prayer for him, uh, his son David, of course, is pastor of Prince City Bible Church, and son-in-law Todd Atwood is uh, working on his Ph.D. at Baptist Bible Seminary. Most of you know both of them, so be in prayer for them and. Um, um, David's presenting a paper, uh, Andy Woods is presenting a paper, uh, two or three others, but the two primary speakers are going to be Wayne House, who's doing four sessions related to uh, hermeneutics and uh, inerrancy, and then David Farnell, who is doing four sessions, three of which relate to inerrancy, one of which relates to how current evangelical scholarship is is claiming they believe in inerrancy on one hand, but they're rejecting it uh, by their methodology on the other hand. It's very important for pastors especially to understand these, these issues. They're, they're difficult. They're complicated. Uh, I mean, the issues related to the gospel. And uh, it's important for pastors to know and for people to at least hear uh, some of the issues so that they are knowledgeable because some of the pastors that pe here, people we know, uh, we're not going to be around forever and they're going to be looking for pastors to replace them. And these guys coming out of seminary, many of them uh, have gone to the traditional bulwark seminaries, you know, the ones we're talking about, uh, have been 
wrongly influenced and have picked up a lot of bad ideas. So this is going to be a very informative, very good conference uh, this time. Um, Wayne House at one time had, when, when I first met Wayne, I think he had already written about 40 or 50 books. He's a writing machine. He's kind of like, uh, like they said about Louis L'Amour. Anywhere he goes, he'll have a laptop on his lap. He's in the car, and he's writing, and he's cranking out books left and right. And uh, I've known Wayne about 35 years. I've, just, I've known of Farnell for about 20-plus years and have read and benefited from uh, his, uh, his writings. Uh, he wrote a book called The Jesus Crisis, with Bob Thomas. Bob Thomas was one of our speakers about 10 years ago uh, where he outlined the problems that are going on in the New Testament departments of, uh, of our seminary. So uh, those are the main speakers. And uh, I think uh, Mark Musser is also, doing, also giving a presentation. Mark, Andy Woods, David Roseland, and uh, I can't remember. There's a fourth individual. So Hmm? Oh, yeah, we have one interesting one. We have a non-Messianic Jew who's going to speak on uh, <clears throat> genetics and the identification of Jews. And he is from Houston. He's a friend of mine. He is a founder of the largest DNA testing lab in the U.S. And there are still... Um, Evangelicals, I know of at least one faculty member at Dallas Seminary who believes in what's called the Khazar theory, which was adequately refuted in a book called Anti-Semitism by Pastor Theme and has been refuted by many others. But um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, Bennett's going to come. When I heard of this this last summer, I called him up, and he he speaks as an expert on Jewish DNA and Jewish identity around the world to all kinds of groups. He is probably the, one of the top or foremost experts on this in, in the world. So uh, we're, I'm looking forward to, to hearing him. We also have some other presentations um, uh, during the conference, during the lunch hour, uh, sort of a brown bag type of uh, presentation. All right, with that, I'm going to open in prayer, and then we'll get into our text tonight. Father, we're <clears throat> we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we have this time to be encouraged, strengthened by your word, that as your word edifies us in the through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we are matured, we are challenged, that there is no hope, there's no happiness, there's no stability in life apart from dependence upon you and your word. A radical, mind-transforming dependence is the only way in which we can face the issues of life in a way that has eternal value and significance for us. And Father, we pray that as we study tonight, you challenge us uh, personally, individually, in the areas of application, that we can uh, see how these uh, eternal truths transform our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. In Christ's name, amen. We're studying in First and Second Samuel, and in the process, as we are going through the life of David, who wrote many of our psalms, we are studying the 12 historical uh, psalms, that is, psalms that have a historical annotation at the beginning that fit within specific situations in David's life. We have spent a lot of time the last two to three months on these psalms because eight of the 12 come within a specific period of time when uh, Saul is uh, persecuting David and chasing him around the country. These are important psalms and uh, to study, to understand, because they are models for us in how to handle adversity, how to face any kind of situation where we're dealing with hostility. Uh, and that can be from another person. It can be in a workplace environment. It can be in the military. It can be in a national scenario. There are an innumerable ways in which we face hostility from people we know, sometimes people we care about, sometimes people who are or have been our friends, and they uh, have 
uh, they're attacking us. And this is the kind of situation David was in. And in, as we read through First Samuel, as we go through the chapters, First Samuel 17 through about chapter 25, we don't necessarily gain the insights into David's character, into what is happening between his ears, and we know that spiritual warfare takes place between our ears. It's what we think. It's not what we feel. It is our understanding and application of Bible doctrine that is important. And as Paul says in Romans 12, too, we are to have our minds, our mentality transformed by having it renovated, overhauled, renewed through the study of God's Word. It's only when we exchange the human viewpoint garbage in our soul with the divine viewpoint of the Scripture that we are able to face and handle the issues in life. And so these Psalms give us a an insight into what's going on in David's head. And David just didn't waltz along thinking, oh, this is just great applying doctrine in some sort of superficial way, which is what a lot of people think. When you study these Psalms as we have, you realize that David w- responded and reacted to the personal hostility Uh, much the same way that we do. He felt insecure. He was afraid. He didn't know quite how to handle some situations because God wasn't giving him a specific direction. He was worried. He was overcome with fears and doubts and uncertainties, just like we are. And every time we go through these psalms, the lament psalms specifically that we've studied, we see how a person goes through the process of focusing on the word rather than the situation, focusing on God and his attributes rather than the circumstances and the details of life, and shifting our thinking from that which is focused on that the, the unstable, the uncertain, the hostile, to focusing on that which has uh, st- true stability and Uh, real security, which is God. And again, we've seen this in a couple of other Psalms, uh, but again, we come to this principle that God is our refuge. He is the rock. He's our fortress. He's our high tower. He is the only source of security, and there's nothing in the world. There's nothing in the created order. There's nothing in creation, no detail of life that can provide even a modicum of stability and security and happiness The only way we have it is when we're focused on the Lord. So we're, again, coming out of 1 Samuel 22, where we learn that David has uh, left from uh, the episode in Gath, and he fled west, excuse me, fled east to Adullam and hid in a cave there. And we're told that when it became known that he was there, that those who were the enemies, those who were hostile to uh, to David, who were followers of Saul, uh, excuse me, those that were hostile to Saul, rather, um, and were disenfranchised by Saul. They lost property, they lost money, they lost uh, uh, some of their uh, means of income. When they found out where David was, they joined up with him. And some of these became known as his mighty men. And eventually, because of their training with David in this wilderness experience, uh, they became the cadre uh, around which the administration of David's kingdom uh, was, was founded. And so this period of time, from 1 Samuel uh, 17 through about chapter 25, is known as the time that Saul was persecuting persecuting David. And he wrote eight of these Psalms, at least. Those are the ones that have a historical note at the beginning in what looks like a superscription in your English translation. But actually in the Hebrew, it's verse one. Now, there are a number of people who doubt the historicity of these uh, statements. And um, and this is just another area, uh, one of the subtle areas where there's battles uh, among evangelicals who allegedly hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of the text. And they use various uh, subterfuges and rationales to try to avoid 
uh, this aspect of the text. And within Jewish tradition, this is considered to have been inspired. And even though it may not have been put there by the original author, I believe that the priest, most likely Ezra, following the um, following the time of the captivity when they returned to the land, that these psalms were uh, collated and collected and organized in a specific way according to a particular standard into the five books of the psalms, and that was done under divine inspiration. So uh, when they put these, either they or someone before inserted this, it was done under divine inspiration. We're told in the superscription that this is a contemplation of David. Second, that it is a prayer when he was in the cave. Now, there's about four or five things we need to say by way of introduction. Actually, six things I want to point out. First of all, in terms of authorship, the superscript assigns authorship to David, and it also gives us the historical situation which puts us at a time when David is in a cave. But it clearly affirms that this is a contemplation of David, and there's no reason that, uh, no, no legitimate scholarly reason that we should doubt the veracity of either the authorship or the circumstances. One of the 19th century uh, scholars in the Psalms who wrote a, a fairly good commentary states that either David wrote it or it was written by someone who was trying to duplicate David's style and thus would be a pious forgery. And so he opts for Davidic authorship. Uh, Alan Ross, uh, who taught the Psalms many years at Dallas Seminary, he wrote the commentary on the Psalms in the Bible Knowledge Commentary and has recently completed uh, an extremely extensive uh, three-volume work on the Psalms, says that there's no major problem with acknowledging that the original composition uh, was David's. Second thing that we should observe in terms of introduction is this is the last of the eight Davidic Psalms which uh, were written during this time when Saul was persecuting him. And so when we think about this, each of these eight Psalms, as I indicated earlier, this has great application to us whenever we are in any kind of difficult circumstance. Whenever you feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you, whenever you're facing any kind of crisis, adversity, or difficulty in life, it could be the death of a loved one, it could be the loss of a job, it could be the loss of income or financial security, it could be any number of things that happen in life. These are among the psalms that you should go to. Now, they're classified, as we'll see, uh, as by modern authors as lament psalms because the author is bringing a complaint to God, basically. He's saying, God, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in a tough spot. I'm in a terrible situation, and I'm calling upon you. I'm crying to you. I'm uh, <clears throat> screaming to you to intervene and to rescue me from these particular circumstances. And so there's a tremendous amount of application here. Third thing we should note is it simply says that this is a prayer when he was in the cave. Now, there are two different times when David hid in a cave. The first was at the cave of Adullam, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and following. And the second time is at the cave of Engedi. Uh, this is when David and his men were hiding deep in the cave and Saul came in to relieve himself and uh, David uh, snuck up on him, cut off part of his robe to show that he really could have killed him, but he really didn't want to. He had no reason to, and that would have violated the uh, anointed factor of uh, Saul's being anointed by God. David was not going to uh, take Saul's life. That's described in 1 Samuel 24, 1-21. Though either reference, either circumstance could fit, it, there is a tone of desperation, a tone of urgency in this particular psalm that doesn't fit the First Samuel 24 situation at the cave of En Gedi. It fits the situation at Adullam where 
David has, is being hotly pursued by Saul. He tried to hide out among the Philistines in Gath, and we saw how that fell apart. And so he's fled to the cave of Adullam, trying to figure out just what his next move was supposed to be and what was going to take place. It's called a contemplation. This is the fourth thing. It's called a contemplation. The Hebrew word is maskil, M-A-S-K-I-L, maskil. And of these eight psalms that are written by David uh, while he's in the wilderness being pursued by Saul, Psalm 52 and Psalm 54 uh, also uh, have uh, written in the superscript that they are a maskil. Now, we don't know exactly what that is, but it might be uh, that uh, in the second line it says this is a prayer, which is the Hebrew word uh, tefillah. And if you're familiar at all with Judaism, you know that the uh, Orthodox Jews will wear something on their head, a phylactery that has the law in it, on their forehead, and also they will have the same little box with uh, uh, portions of the law and and them on the back of their hands. Those are also referred to as tefillim, which is the plural form of uh, tefillah, which indicates that their function is to aid in making prayers. So perhaps a prayer... Uh, a tefillim, a, a tefillah rather, a prayer is uh, what a contemplation is. It is a um, a prayer to God. Fifth point in terms of the application, which I've alluded to already, is in modern classifications, the psalm is called an individual lament. You have individual laments, and you also have communal laments. In a communal lament, it is the nation Israel that is coming before God, calling upon God to intervene, to intercede in their circumstances, their situation to rescue or deliver the nation. In individual laments, it's the same kind of thing. You have the individual writer who is in some sort of crisis, some sort of adversity, where things are falling apart, and he is pleading with God to rescue him and sustain him in the midst of his adversity. Therefore, they are a perfect illustrations of how prayer is used as a vehicle to take what we call the problem-solving devices or the spiritual skills or stress busters, to take those and apply them within the framework of prayer as we come before the Lord. Sixth point is, as you look at the text, there's seven verses plus the superscription, and there are some key words that you should underline or note. In the first verse, uh, David says, I cry out to the Lord. That is parallel to the last phrase, I make my supplication. Uh, So he's crying out and supplication. We'll see that those are uh, synonymous, that's a synonymous parallelism there, and we need to understand what that means. In verse 2, he says, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. So complaint and trouble are parallel. We need to look at what those, that, those words mean. In verse 3, we have an extremely important principle laid out for those who wrestle with discouragement or depression Uh, a sense of defeat that constantly plagues them. David says, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, what does it mean to be overwhelmed? We normally don't think of David as someone who is uh, completely overwhelmed by his circumstances. He also says, then you knew my path. What does that mean that he addresses God, you knew this? In verse 3, he talks about his enemies, that they have uh, secretly set a snare for him. What does that mean? Uh, furthermore, in verse 4, he brings in the idea of, of uh, refuge. He says, refuge has failed me. What does he mean by that? Is he talking about God's refuge or man as refuge? And it's clarified in the last line, no one cares for my soul. What does it mean to care for a soul? Um, but it seems like his refuge there is w- that he was looking to was people, and people will, at to one degree or another, at one time or another, they will always fail us. 
And that is because they are finite, corrupt sinners. They just can't solve the problems that only God can solve. Then we come to uh, verse 6, and we see a series of, of statements. Attend or to my cry or listen to my cry. Deliver me and then bring my soul out of prison. Three different words that are in the imperative. Of course, this is an imperative of petition or imperative of request to God, but he's calling upon God to do these three things, to listen, to deliver, and to bring my soul out of prison or rescue me. And so that those are the key words, the key ideas that we need to focus on to help us to understand this psalm and see how it fits to us fits or applies to us. Okay, the first section is the expression of his cry to God. This is in the first two verses. And what we see in verses one and two is that in times of adversity and pressure, the believer should cry out to God to intervene or to sustain him. By intervene, I mean to intervene and change the circumstances or to sustain him through the negative circumstance. And this is a can be universalized to almost every believer because we face difficulties. We face opposition. We face uh, people who don't like us, whether it's a personal reason, a spiritual reason, whether it is uh, as a result of uh, their own sin nature or whether it's something that we have done uh, whether the crisis is large or small, personal or national, we are to really constantly rely on the Lord. Our default position in any type of problem should always be to turn to the Lord. He is our refuge. That doesn't mean that there aren't secondary things that we should do. For example, if it's a financial matter, then you need to get some financial counseling in order to handle your money correctly. But ultimately, you're trusting in God and biblical principles to be able to rightly and responsibly handle handle your, your finances and get out of the situation that you are in. Psalm 142, verse 1 begins, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord... I make my supplication. Now, the way I've indented that is to show that the first line and the last line mirror one another, and the two middle lines mirror one another. And this is in a pattern where the first line is, we would designate that as A, and the last line would be an A, and the two middle lines would both be Bs. It's an A, B, B, A pattern. And here we see a chiasm where the focus is really on the center two lines with my voice. And we'll see what that means uh, in just a minute. But that's the focal point of the verse. He's crying out to God. He's making supplication to God. But he's bringing a slight emphasis to this phrase, with my, uh, with my voice. And that tells us, that this David is has a tone of desperation. He is moving into panic palace. He doesn't know which way to go or what to do or how to handle the situation. He is public enemy number one. Saul has his entire army and all of the uh, tribal leaders looking for David, and he wants to kill David. So the situation calls for an urgent and immediate intervention by the Lord because David can't handle it. Now, not all of our uh, adversities demand some sort of urgent and immediate response. But this particular situation does because his life is being threatened and more and more people are coming to him to help them and to sustain them. His family is now hiding with him and he feels uh, trapped by the circumstances. So he's expressing his desperation and deliverance for him is 
absolutely urgent. That's a pattern you see in these lament psalms as he starts off crying out to God, usually focusing on a problem. And then as he focuses on the character of God and the solution, you see how his mental attitude shifts. And that's one of the great things about going through these psalms and why they have spoken to so many people down through the centuries is because we go through the same thing. We hit some situation and we immediately react in the wrong way. Our sin nature takes control. Then once we sort of get a handle on what's going on, we remember, oh, yes, I need to confess sin and start walking by the Spirit. I need to start thinking in terms of doctrine, and we start focusing on the Lord. But this gives us uh, that process. So as I've color-coded and highlighted these phrases, we see a parallel between crying out and supplication. He emphasizes then both parts of the verse, that it is with his voice, and that indicates that he is crying out audibly. He is calling upon God. Um, he may be screaming to God. He is calling out, crying out, God, rescue me. And so he is, um, this terminology is typical for that which we find in the laments. It is the the verb here for cry out is the Hebrew verb za'ak, which means to cry out. It's in the imperfect uh, tense, which indicates it's a continual action. He continues to cry. This isn't just a one-time thing. He's doing it again and again and again as he's crying out to God. And he's calling upon God to uh, to rescue him. We see this same thing in the fifth verse but there's a shift that will occur here. There he says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and it's in the perfect tense, which indicates uh, a sense that he is stabilized and focusing on God at that point, and that he has done this. He's no longer crying out to God. He's thinking of it in the past. I cried out to you, and uh, he is focusing on God and his character as his refuge and as his inheritance. That's the idea of the word portion. We'll see that when we get to that verse. Psalm 107, uh, 13 and 19 in a psalm that talks about Israel, talks about uh, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. The word distress there is a word for adversity, for difficulties, for troubles. God is the one who delivers us, and when we cry out to him in the midst of our trouble, he is the one who rescues us. Psalm 107, 19, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of all their distresses. So that is an echoing uh, verse in Psalm 107, and reflects probably a chorus within that verse. That's the main idea. We cry out to God, and he rescues us. Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm and a prophetic psalm, also has elements within it that refer back in history to uh, the experience of the Israelites. David is the author of Psalm 22, and in verse 4 he says, Our fathers, referring to back to the generation of the Exodus, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you. Same word. You cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So it's no shame to cry out to God. It's no shame to express our desperation to God. I think sometimes Christians get the idea, well, if I'm applying doctrine, I need to be unemotional. I need to be stoic. Uh, it's wrong to express emotion. You know, quit trying to fool God. God knows that our emotions often get raw and out of whack when we go through difficult times. You read the Psalms and you see again and again the emotion of David is present. He's not hiding it. He's not trying to fake God out. He is expressing his emotion. Now, the emotion isn't what moves God. The emotion doesn't impress God. But the emotion is who we are. It's not denying the reality of how a circumstance uh, impacts us. So it's important that we should not be silent 
um, as if God is not there or if God is ignorant of the turmoil that is going on inside of our soul as a result of the circumstances. That's reality. And so we don't live as Christians in a realm of reality trying to act as if we're not just coming apart at the seams. David is very honest. Lord, I'm coming apart at the seams. Come rescue me. He doesn't, uh, he's not trying to impress God that somehow the fact that he's emotionally frazzled is moving God to do what God's going to do. He bases his uh, rationale, his argument in the prayer on God's character and on doctrine, not on his, on his emotion. Uh, so we emphasize that Psalm 88 uh, 1 and 13 also use this same terminology, O Lord, God of my salvation. Notice the focus is on Yahweh as the covenant God of Israel, who's revealed himself to Scripture, who's identified himself as the God of my salvation. And David says, I've cried out day and night before you, continuously, day after day. This isn't a one-shot prayer, and God's going to come come in and rescue. God wants us to focus and shift our thinking to an attitude of dependence upon him. And sometimes it may be weeks, months, or years before we get that into our head, that mental attitude shift. So David says, I cried out day and night before you, and then in verse 13, but to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Now that may challenge some of you who are not morning people. But when you wake up, even if it's at 2 in the afternoon, that's your morning. So you can begin to pray at that time. In verse 2, <clears throat> David continues to express how he is praying to God. He says, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. And so, um, wait a minute, I got that, that slide is out of order. Let me go back and finish up with the last phrase in Psalm 142.1. He, he concludes, parallel to the first line, I cry out to the Lord. He says, I make my supplication. But it's an interesting word there in the Hebrew. It's the word hanan, which has to do with grace or mercy. But it's in an unusual what they call stems in Hebrew. And each stem takes a verb and will have different vowels, different uh, uh, vocalization. And uh, when it's in the hithpael, that's a, um, a causative stem. But it will have a slightly different meaning than it will in the root cow stem. And it doesn't simply mean to show favor. It means to plead for mercy. So that is translated in the New King James as supplication, but I think it's much stronger to say, I make my plea for mercy to you. That's what he's calling upon God to intercede graciously. And what do we call that? We call that grace orientation, don't we? We understand God's grace, and we are going to call upon him to intercede graciously in our lives. So this is going to take us back to just, I want to review quickly for us, our basic spiritual skills are problem-solving devices. This is how we face any adversity in life. First of all, we have to confess sin. Now, this is part of the, these first five are part of spiritual infancy. We master these as we begin to grow. We sin, we confess sin, First uh, John 1, 9, and we, are, uh, we recover from walking by the sin nature to walking uh, according to the Spirit. And so that's the next problem-solving device, is we are to be filled by means of the Spirit, which is tantamount to walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is a skill you develop, like any other skill, through practice. It's not something that happens automatically just because you confess your sin. All that does is get you back in the right relationship with God so you can then begin to go forward uh, walking by, by the Spirit. It's not something you know, don't automatically grow. You have to start applying the doctrine that's in your soul. When you do that, you're trusting in the Word. That's the faith rest drill. And you're claiming those promises. This is what Peter refers to in Second Peter 1, 
uh, 3 and 4. God has given us many magnificent promises. Uh, We also express grace orientation, that we grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the fifth uh, spiritual skill, which is orienting our thinking towards the Word of God, towards doctrine. Then we move into the next stage of growth, which is spiritual adolescence. And this is where we quit living today in light of what we want right now, but we begin to live today in light of eternity. It's our personal sense of our eternal destiny. We are going to die one day, might be tonight, might be in the morning, might be next week, next year, next decade, but we're going to be uh, face-to-face with the Lord, and then the rapture is going to occur, and then the judgment seat of Christ. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to receive rewards based on uh, our performance here in this life in terms of our spiritual growth. Now, even Old Testament saints are going to be rewarded, and there's a hint of this in this particular passage when David talks about the fact that my portion in the land of the living, that word portion is a word that refers to your share in in your inheritance, And so he understands that his circumstances at this time ultimately are going to impact uh, him in eternity. So we see all of these first six uh, problem-solving devices reflected in David's thinking in this particular psalm. Then as spiritual adults, we master, we don't begin loving God. Even babies love their parents. Five-year-olds love their parents a little better than babies do. Nine-year-olds love their parents better than five-year-olds. Eighteen-year-olds aren't so sure anymore because they're going through adolescence and they're not sure they respect their parents at all. Then all of a sudden their parents get real smart about the time they turn 30 and they love them in a mature way. But love takes time to grow and mature. And so there's personal love for God. We learn to love others because God first loved us. And then we become focused and occupied with Christ. Those three uh, spiritual skills work together. And when they're working together, then we will experience the uh, perfect happiness of God uh, this is James 1, 2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, those are those 10 spiritual skills, and I've got another graphic here that sort of shows how they work. When you're operating in these spiritual skills, it is like a wall of protection around your soul. And when you are utilizing those, then you are walking in the light, John says in 1 John chapter 1. You are also abiding in Christ. You are also uh, walking in the light, walking by the Holy Spirit, and it depends on your volition as to whether you're going to try to handle the challenges of life on your own or do it through uh, the Word of God. And we are designed to tear up stress in our life. David's facing a lot of stress here, and the desperation and urgency in his voice indicates that he's converted that external adversity into stress. So as Christians, we are to be about the business of busting stress out of our lives, and we use these five basic skills especially the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. They work together. They work in tandem in order to take us down the road and the path to spiritual maturity. So in Psalm 142.1, we call upon the grace of God. That means he's oriented to grace And he's also oriented to the doctrine of prayer, so he's got doctrinal orientation going on, as well as dependence upon God, so that's the faith rest drill. In uh, Psalm 142.1, he's pouring out his complaint before God, which is what we should do. I've heard Christians say, well, I don't really want to bother God. Well, since God is omnipotent, You can't bother him because he's greater than any problem you're going to face. Since God is omniscient for all of eternity and beyond, he knows 
what your problems are, so it's not going to surprise him. And because God is omnipresent, he's right there with you, just waiting for you to express your dependency upon him. The word to pour out is the Hebrew word shafak, which literally means to pour out and to verbalize and to articulate uh, what that problem is. It's used in a lot of different Psalms. Uh, in Psalm 62, 8, we read, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. See, we are to take all of our uh, heartaches and problems and frustrations to God. Uh, I think Peter puts it this way, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Uh, and Christians get too busy. I don't want to bother God. You'll never bother God. God is not a finite God with a beard up in heaven that is overwhelmed with the problems of mankind. We're commanded to pour out our heart, our thinking, what's going on inside of our head as we face the issues of life before him. Uh, God is a refuge for us. He is our source of strength, and he's the one who can provide uh, security. In the superscript for Psalm 102, uh, <clears throat> we read, it's a prayer of the afflicted, that is, those who are going through adversity, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. It'd be nice to take the time to go through Psalm 102. It's, a, it's another psalm showing us how to bring these problem-solving devices online so that we can handle the issues of life. So he pours out his, uh, his complaint, and that is in synonymous parallelism to the word declare. Now, that's an interesting word, declare. It's the Hebrew word nagid, which is often used to talk about declaring praise to God. It means to verbalize audibly something that is going on in your life. And it may be toward God. It may be toward people, depending on the circumstances. It's used in Psalm 38:18 for confession of sin to God. I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin, uh, David writes. In Psalm 30, uh, he says, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? He's, he's complaining that his enemies are after him and he'll be destroyed. And uh, he's arguing with God, rescue me because if I'm dead, there won't be anybody to praise you. But if you rescue me, then I will declare your truth. That's a declarative praise uh, psalm idea. Psalm 71, 17, O God, you've taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. See, praising God is declaring, it's organizing our thoughts and, and expressing specifically what God has done. It's not just mindlessly saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise you the Lord. It is uh, giving specifics. Psalm 75, 9, but I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And so again, it focuses on declaring praise to God. In verse 3, he focuses on his lament. David is focusing on the problem. He has internalized the external adversity as stress, and it is overwhelming him. Actually, this word has uh, more significant meanings than just being overwhelmed. It indicates that David was going through some serious depression and discouragement because of uh, the circumstances and his inability to figure out uh, what was going on and what was going to take place next. It talks, it starts off with the word when. And so this indicates that this is something that happened more than once and that when David got discouraged, um, he, he expresses it this way, when my spirit uh, overwhelmed me. 
he says goes on then to show the shift. See, when his spirit is being overwhelmed, he's focusing on the problem, on the circumstances, and on the people, just like we do. But then you see the shift beginning to take place. He says, then you knew my path. He's focusing on the person of God, on his character, on his attributes, specifically his omniscience, and that God knows his life. God knows the circumstances of his life. And then he concludes talking again about the problem. In the way in which I walk, that is in my life, uh, they have secretly set a snare for me. That's part of the problem is they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to trap him uh, in order to hurt him. This word translated was overwhelmed is the Hebrew word ataf, which again is in that hithpael stem I mentioned earlier that's causative. And the root meaning is to be faint or to be feeble, but it has the idea of being depressed. The root idea of the, or main idea of the root is to be darkened. When our soul enters darkness because we're so defeated, we're so distressed, we're so discouraged by life, that it seems like nothing is going to help. Let me give you about five quick points on depression. First of all, fear is an emotion that is generated when our security is threatened. It's the very first emotion we learn about in the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. They heard God coming after they had sinned, and they hid because they were afraid. That was their explanation. So fear is an emotion that's generated when our security is threatened, when life is uncertain, life is unstable, then the emotion that goes with that is fear. Second point is that worry, which is a close cousin to fear, is generated when either security or significance is threatened. Man was created to have meaning and value and to rule over God's creation. And when that significance is threatened or uncertain and we don't think we have meaning or value, then a result is worry. Third, another mental attitude sin is anger. Anger results when we don't get our way or we don't think we will ever get our way. When you don't get, get your way, you get mad. Sometimes you get very impatient, you get upset, you fly off the handle. And when we don't think that we're going to get what we want or what we need to be secure or significant or to have value in life, then the result is, is anger. Fourth, when we've been angry for a long enough time that we're not getting what we think we need to be secure, and if we get, we get to the point where we don't think we're ever going to get it, we're never going to achieve uh, any kind of financial security to make it through retirement, we're never going to be able to uh, do the things we want or to have the kind of marriage we want or to have children that act the way we want them to act. And when we... Uh, major on those things, the result over a long time, when that fails for a long time, is that we become depressed. When life's objectives seem impossible, then we give in to depression. And fifth point is what we learn from this. If you're a person that has a problem with depression or discouragement, you feel overwhelmed, this is your verse. Here we learn that God is the ultimate solution to depression and discouragement and fear. All of these things that we see here, fear, worry, anxiety, and, and long-term depression, come from making the details of life the focal point of happiness and meaning and security in life. And we think that the details of life are so great but they're not as great as the omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence of God. And so God is the one who provides for us. We see this terminology, this, this word used in passages such as Jonah, where Jonah says, when my soul fainted within me as he's in the belly of the great fish, I remembered the Lord. He was depressed because he thought he was going to die. And then he remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Psalm 143, 4. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. See, the writers of Scripture are honest about their depression. They're honest about their discouragement and their failure. They don't just say, you know, uh, I, I know a lot of doctrine, so I don't feel bad. I'm not depressed. 
No, they're not trying to pull the wool over God's eyes because you can't do that. They have to confess the sin and own up to it before they can start dealing with it honestly. So David in verse 3 says, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. See, his focal point is on the attributes of God, on the essence box. He goes to his omniscience. You knew what the details of my life were all about. How does he handle depression? He focuses on God's knowledge. God wasn't surprised by what the fact that he was running away from Saul. God wasn't surprised that God wanted to, that uh, Saul wanted to kill him. God wasn't surprised that he was hiding out in the cave of Adullam and had, not, had no idea what to do next. So once he realized that God was omniscient and knew all of these things, then he realized God could solve his problem. He expands on his problem in that last phrase, in the way in which I walk, as I go about my life, in other words, walk is often a metaphor for life. He said, they've set a snare for me. We don't know what that trap was. It's unclear. It could be something that's through verbal sins. Many of these Psalms have focused on the verbal sins of his enemies, their gossip, they malign, they spread lies about David. Uh, They would be accusing him before Saul, something like what we read in Psalm 140, verses 2 through 5. In Psalm 140, we read uh, about the evil ones, that they plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. So there's this mental attitude conspiracy that develops into um, things that they are writing, things that they are saying about David. And this is the same kind of thing we see in the press today. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips, Selah. And then the prayer, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me. And cords, they've spread a net by the wayside. They've set traps for me. And what we learn in this is that only God cares about us. Because in the course of this, in the fourth verse, uh, David says, Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. He recog- he's got to be brought to a certain point where he realizes he can't depend on anybody. He can't depend on his mighty men. He can't depend on his family. He can't depend on any human being. The only refuge is going to be God, which he recognizes in the fifth verse. So he calls upon God in verse 4. He says, look at my right hand. Now, the, your right hand of a ruler is his source of strength. When Jesus ascends to the Father, he didn't sit on the left hand. That's because that's where the liberals are. No, just kidding. He sat at his right hand. The right hand is the place of authority, the place of power, the place where you put your best uh, best person. David says, look on my right hand and see, for there's no one who acknowledges me. In other words, there's nobody at my right hand. I've got nobody that's got my back. Nobody's watching my six. He says, refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Now, the, this is the beginning of these three words that he, where he focuses what he wants God to do. Um, or, or, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is in verse 4. Look at my right hand and see. This word, navat, means to look or to focus on something, to pay attention. He's telling God, pay attention to my life. Quit being involved with whatever the Philistines are doing and whatever the Babylonians or the Assyrians or those people way over there that I heard about called the Chinese. Quit worrying about them. Pay attention to my life. We all feel that way at times, that God just might be a little too busy. Why isn't he paying attention to what's going on with me? So he's saying, God, look, pay attention, focus on what's going on in my life. And then what's going on is what he says in the second part of the verse, refuge has failed me. Now, this word for refuge is also a word that's applied to God. It's just a general word for refuge. Psalm fifty-nine, sixteen, is where it's used of God, where David says, I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. But he has sought to find refuge from people. And 
He says, there's no one who acknowledges me. And this is the word at the bottom of the car, which indicates to recognize, to um, to know. Sometimes it has the idea of treating something as foreign. Uh, nobody acknowledges me. Nobody really pays attention to me. Nobody is helping me. And that's parallel to the last line where he says, no one cares for my soul. That's an interesting word there. It's the Hebrew word darash, which later the rabbis in the intertestamental period used that to, to identify one mode of interpretation. Uh, the word darash means to seek something with care or to inquire. So it was used later to refer to inquiring into the meaning of scripture. But here it applies to David's life. He says, no one no one cares about me. No one's asking about me. No one is seeking to care about me. Now, this isn't a pity party. He's not saying nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat worms. He is simply expressing the fact that he has reached a point where he realizes nobody is trying to uh, help him, and nobody can. Only God can be his refuge, which is why in verse 5 he says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I pointed this out earlier that as he shifts from I am crying out to you at the beginning, the imperfect tense, in the perfect tense he's saying that this is over with. I cried out to you, now I'm focusing on you. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And here he uses a different word for refuge. He uses the word makseh, which has that simple meaning of a place of security, a place of refuge, a place of protection. And he recognizes that God is his uh, only source to, uh, of sustenance and security. This is used in other passages, such as Psalm 91.2. All of these other verses I'm giving you are verses you ought to write down and memorize. They're great promises. Psalm 91.2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him I will trust. So as soon as he uses this word refuge, it immediately brings to mind the idea of the faith rest drill of trusting in God. Psalm seventy three twenty eight. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put and see it's translated as trust, but it's the same word that means refuge. Refuge is often used as a figure of speech to bring out the idea of trust or the faith rest drill. I put my trust, or I'm making my refuge in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. And then the last line, he says, my portion in the land of the living. Now, that's an important word. It's the word helic. Now, there's two key words that are important for understanding inheritance. Both have to do with, with property or ownership. I just got through teaching on this whole idea of inheritance and uh, rewards in, in Kiev when I was over there. And this is one of the two words that I would trace through the Old Testament. And it has the idea of a share of inheritance or property. And so it, it bring, in the land of the living, that's not talking about heaven. That's in, in the Old Testament context, it's talking about David's inheritance as the king in Israel, in the promised land, in the land of Israel. But it also speaks of the same kind of idea that we see, and I've taught about in Psalm 8, I mean in Romans 8, 17, that if we're children of God, first of all, we're heirs of God. That's something common to every believer, uh, heirship with God. David's focusing on that. He's saying God is his portion. God is his inheritance, that personal relationship with God. The second kind of inheritance mentioned in Romans eight seventeen is being a joint heir with Christ if we suffer with him. Now, we're not saved by suffering with Jesus. We're saved by simply trusting in Jesus and believing that he died on the cross for our sins. But as Peter is telling us, because inheritance is a big part of the framework for First Peter, which we're studying on Thursday night, that, that when we suffer, as we grow as mature and mature as believers facing adversity, that that builds our inheritance, our rewards in heaven. And so David has this in mind. He's got a personal sense of his eternal destiny in heaven, and he's growing and living. He's living his life in light of that eternity and that inheritance. And then in verse 6, 
He begins with these commands, attend, deliver, and bring. Uh, He says, attend to my cry, which basically means listen to me, God. And sometimes we need to say that, but not in a disrespectful way. But we are crying to God, pay attention, listen to me. My life's falling apart. I'm depending upon you. That's what David is saying. For I'm brought very long. I'm depressed. Life is falling apart. You've given me a promise to make me the king of Israel. That's not going so well right now. The current king's trying to kill me. Uh, I need to uh, trust trust in you. You need to intervene. Then the second word, deliver, is the Hebrew word, natsal, which means to deliver me from my persecutors. That is Saul and his gang. For they're stronger than I am. I can't overwhelm them. I, you're the only one who can do anything. And then he says, bring my soul out of prison. It's as if he is trapped by these circumstances. Saul's chasing him. He has no place to go. It's like being in prison, and he's calling upon God to deliver him. Why? Here's the motivation in prayer that I can praise your name. Not by saying hallelujah, but by telling people how your word has delivered me and saved me and how trusting in you gives me stability and happiness and joy in this life. Uh, Deliver me so that I can declare your praise to the people, to the righteous who will surround me. They will want to hear how, how the story about how I trusted in you uh, from the cave of Adullam and you uh, provided for me. And then the last line, for you shall deal bountifully with me, which is kind of an uh, unusual construction there. And you would think that maybe the word bountiful might have something to do with grace, but it doesn't. It's this word, gamal, which means to reward or recompense. See, he already understands, number one, that he has a share or portion in God who's his inheritance. But in addition to that, God is going to reward him above and beyond that uh, related to his spiritual growth and his spiritual life. So Psalm 142 is a great psalm for us to study and to read. And we see uh, developed in that at least six of the Uh, spiritual skills, the problem-solving devices, and we come to understand how we are to use those uh, through the vehicle of prayer in depending upon God to sustain us in the midst of whether it's mental attitude problems, uh, depression, discouragement, or whether it's dealing with external enemies. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be reminded that you are our refuge, that we can not ultimately depend upon people or circumstances or things or events, but we can only depend upon you. You alone are our refuge, and we need to learn to radically trust in you, uh, radically walk by means of the Holy Spirit, radically be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we exemplify your thinking in our souls in every area of life. And we're thankful for your grace, our free grace salvation that is not dependent on who we are, and also the motivation to live for you in terms of rewards and service at the judgment seat of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.